0: What conditions are um, Stipulations. Magic tricks or manipulations, interjecting conversation. I don't know talk about. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Pride Month, uh, when I went to go launch the Zoom meeting, uh, Zoom. Has the logo uh, rainbow. Thank you, Zoom, for gay saying Zoom. gay rights. All right. I feel like every company now is like, no, 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 no. We've always loved gay people. Are you kidding? We were like the first ones. From what, the- baby. <laughs> Zoom for through the first brick at Stonewall. Yeah, right. <laughs> the first Pride was a Zoom meeting. <laughs> yeah, and like the example that you were talking about of like an airline being all pridesy but then donating um, none of these corporations who are all coming out for pride are doing anything to speak out about the supreme court or local state federal legislators who surprisingly enough even though we've come a long way there are a lot of them who are anti-gay rights anti-trans rights who are still like putting up a fuss about pronouns and the Supreme Court right now is actually deciding a case about adoption rights for gay couples and whether adoption agencies can claim like religious liberty and deny them. And Brooke, I think we're on the, the same page in our prediction that that's not gonna go too well. Just looking at the, the lineup here, you know, Brett Kavanaugh. <laughs> oh Mark yeah. Thomas has always been a Men the of the people for, for gay rights. Uh, yeah, I think that well, they're definitely going to sign um, Gorsuch with- too. Gorsuch. Gorsuch surprises me sometimes, but I don't know. He does, but not with, I feel like not with stuff like this. Yeah. When it's religion on the table, because he loves that. He loves- and I don't picture him being like a pro-gay. Anyways, um, this is Exceedingly Persuasive. I'm Mackenzie Brennan, and this show is pro-gay. And I'm anything, Rogers, and I what have you be in gay. between... <laughs> wow what bravery from us you're welcome we said yes here's to us being uh pro-gay being pro-lgbt community in 2021 feels very much like very bold kirsten Gillibrand during the democratic primaries she was in that bar and she like took a shot and she's like gay rights (laughs) thank you very much hey i love love it I'm um, yeah, I think yeah I'm think like, i always torn about the corporate shit because thank God it's it's normalized. And I do still have enough, as we'll see in this story, like there's enough in my familial memory that it's like, that's awesome that this is still yeah. something that seems controversial in my head or that other people see it as that. And it's, it's not anymore, at least not on paper. And hey, that's a step. Well, I think so. that's kind of like what I was going to say about these businesses who will they'll make their logo a rainbow or whatever. And then they'll donate (laughs) behind the scenes, their CEO um, or the company itself is donating to hyper-conservative politicians or causes. It's It's like they, you know, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to like their rainbow cake. Yeah. yeah. They they want, because obviously the, the end goal is profit. So it's trying to balance. And that's also why I think a lot of, a lot of companies will like be like, love is love thank right. you for that, which is a really statement. like, again, beats nothing. But it's such a, a watered down way of, of what does it even mean? Like, what are you saying? <laughs> because it's it is it's such like a lukewarm. Okay, but it's right. explicitly what I feel you like it arose say that. when it was a little controversial to straight up be yeah. like I'm pro gay. So you would have these these like subtle workarounds that you could put on a bumper sticker that weren't expressly like I love the gays. It's it's just like Whoa. which is what which is the bumper sticker that's on the back of my Subaru of my ass of, <laughs> of <laughs> no of a tram stamp that's what I that's as I love the gays. I did actually um th- we I was out in South Carolina recently you know, in like Greenville, South Carolina, the hiking granola community is really big. Mm -hmm. And we were in this outdoor supply shop that was really fun. But one of the bumper stickers they had on the door was, I'm pro salmon and I vote. Okay. I don't know what it means, but I want It's pretty niche. I mean, I guess the only thing I can think is like Alaska environmentalism because a lot of drilling up there can threaten salmon habitats, but they're far from home if they're in Greenville. But I like how, I like the idea of having that as your number sticker and then absolutely not explaining it to anyone being like well, I own a tuxedo sense. cat and I vote. You do. So you should get that so as a don't sticker. you forget it. <laughs> um but no truly I think that like the the whole trend that of companies it's like just enough to signal that they are not homoactively homophobic. While also they never go too far to piss off. like you don't actually hear them being you know, on the front lines of the actual, these are the actual issues that are impacting the LGBT community at this time. And this is how we're addressing them. High suicide rates, you know, like um, lack of housing, um, lack of health care. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. They are not doing that. You're absolutely right that it's enough that they don't piss off the buyers on the other side. It's like, exactly. it's almost this coding that, if you're if you're a real fan, you'll get that I'm talking about gays, but not if you're out of the zeitgeist. Right. And like the, so. if you watch a lot of the ads, it'll feature like two conventionally attractive, yeah. usually like white people holding hands. Skinny, classically yeah. Western attractive. Completely like void of they don't come across like too much. You know what I mean? With anything. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just like. Sneaking completely this in here. I exactly. think we're getting out of that a little bit now, which is good. I think that this, the generation even younger than us is super good about range of representation. So in 10 should, years, it'll be totally different. Yeah, again. I think that we're, we've moved so fast, um, so far. And this episode so is like, a, that we're about to introduce and reference it's such a great representation of how far we've come yeah. in the last 30 years or so. And that is something to be applauded, like the fact that big corporations do feel comfortable That is actually a net good. I just wish it were a little bit less shady. Like I wish it were a little bit less like obviously just a ploy to pander. The other pieces that make it so shady weren't there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I gotta say, if corporations started pandering by being like, We're pro choice, abortion should be safe, legal, and accessible. And they were pandering, I'd be like that's a positive step. So you know, issues are at different stages, and I feel like that can kind of illustrate. Um, how far we've come and I was actually just talking to my mom about the story in the episode that we're gonna kind of re-air today and she was talking about how her family um so my grandmother her son had AIDS and they used to actually have gay men's health crisis meetings on the family porch because there were so few places to go Mm -hmm. um and kids in the neighborhood and it was, I mean, this is New York. It was actually a really liberal neighborhood, but kids would ride by on their bikes and throw rocks at the windows. Yeah. So, you know, that's less than 40 years ago. And part of the reason that this Pride is, is such a big one to mark, beyond the fact that we're still in a pandemic and that's weird and it also, it was our reason for initially covering the AIDS crisis in mm-hmm. parallel to COVID and, and just government mishandling of diseases but is that last weekend marked the 40th anniversary of the first diagnoses of AIDS cases Mm -hmm. and what would eventually be recognized as AIDS. So you think that's 1981. At the time, the common sentiment was, well, they're bringing some themselves because they're having sex that is like outside of the bounds of what we as like Leviticus people. (laughs) Yeah, deem as appropriate. Yeah, and I just want to... Note again, it goes without saying because it's so obvious anytime you hear stories like this, but thinking about 40 years, and I think it's been going around on the internet for a couple years now, but that photo of the original San Francisco Game men's mm-hmm. and it has like the original members in white, and then the rest are current members standing in black representing those who died. Yeah. Um, and it's just like a sea of these black suits, and yeah. like four- white suits and it shows you that this generation or the generation that grew up in that era it's a generation without elders like it is absolutely and i was even watching there's a netflix series on halston the designer and he's another one who died of aids it's like anybody who made a mark in this blip of time in the early to mid 80s late 80s then you got like freddie mercury we're talking about all these people it's like, oh my God, all these talents that we look to now yeah. as icons. And the people who were left behind are so traumatized by it. Like that generation, yeah. from the stories that I have heard, every single member of that generation who was in the LGBT community at the time was affected by this. And so it's like, you have this, you're right, this gener- entire generation of who would now have been older gay people who also, it's not just these huge talents that we lost, but it's also, we lost so many voices for the LGBT mm-hmm. community because they were wiped out by this virus when they were in their 20s. That's a good point, and too. Yeah. I wonder how much further along we would be if we had not lost so many people. Like this humanizing shippers. force. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think you're so right about the trauma, and maybe this can be our segue into reintroducing the episode, but you know, I've lost a fair amount of people close to me. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, people cope in different ways, et cetera, et cetera. Trauma is different. But um, when we spoke to our guest in this episode, uh, I think both of us were struck by how raw it all was mm-hmm. for him still. And there are a few things I think that I feel are as unresolved and as gutting a circumstance yeah. that it just never gets better. And it never gets right as John clearly saw this experience. And I don't think that ever goes away. Mm-hmm. It's not like you, for me, like reconcile that my dad had an aneurysm at first. And that's just something that happens to people. Yeah. Um, it just doesn't get better. Mm-hmm. Experiencing that when you're in a formative time you're 20. Yeah. And it's someone that you are so tied to and, and in love with. Yeah. Um, like your first so love, many people yeah and now they're just gone yeah, yeah the just the, the number i mean john was i, I was so glad that i got the chance to talk to him and he's one story and your family is one story but there are so many stories mm-hmm. that you can dig into and i would i would just yeah encourage our listeners to go out and search this pride month because of the 40th yeah. anniversary and because it's good to remember that like pride month is not just about corporations 40. changing their uh, logos to rainbows are like tweeting out, it's not about that at all. And it doesn't been... mean don't celebrate the victories, like, yeah, go, go to the march enjoy, celebrate yourself, hell yeah. But, um, I think, yeah, it's a, it's a great excuse to yeah. delve into some of these stories. It makes the celebration more meaningful when you know, yeah. the background of the community. And it's Absolutely. like, um, and a lot of, I think, a lot of young people, um, thankfully. They might they might be aware of it, but like thankfully they have not had to experience that trauma as much firsthand. They uh, there there are still so many stories of like really hard coming out stories or you know being um, rejected by your family members or things like that. But more and more um, younger the younger generation is being more and more accepted by by the culture, which is fantastic. Um, but it, it was a that is a hard fought yeah a hard fought for a win absolutely. So, And not Uh, to get complacent. So, this is an episode that we aired about a year ago. The way that we had framed it at the time, which is not irrelevant now, but it was paralleling the Trump administration's handling of COVID with the Reagan administration's handling of HIV/AIDS, and then just delving a little into HIV/AIDS in general as a parallel. Story. So obviously, don't worry. Anytime that you hear us refer to the Trump administration, like you weren't dreaming, we are out of it. It's okay. Um, it was a little hashtag triggering for me <laughs> to listen to it. And the part that I caught out about like how Pence was responsible for an HIV outbreak in Indiana. It's like, and he's now our vice president, and he's head of the task force. It's like, oh, whew, yeah. That is not true anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, I think it's easy because we are under um, a new administration to, to feel that way, but also, um, and, I, and I just talked about, you know, how much more accepting the culture is, but there are still these laws, like uh, these anti-trans bills that are being passed in conservative states, the, the Supreme Court uh, case that is uh, being considered about whether or not gay couples can adopt from religious agencies. Um, Conversion there therapy, are- too, I know, is still... Um, yeah. Yeah. So there are so many... There's so a long way to go. Um, but, yeah, looking back at this, it's, it's good to remember how far we've come. Yeah. We're going to discuss public health policy, effective and ineffective, when a new pandemic starts spreading. We're obviously all familiar with the COVID context, so we wanted to uh, maybe throw it back a little to uh, some historical yeah. relevance. Let's give it some context. In terms of public health policy, you know, timely action, once you find out that this is a thing, the law's approach to personal freedom versus the greater good. Government leaders messaging and incorporating actual medical science, how their rhetoric impacts society at large, uh-huh. responses to something like this—a uh, huge epidemic, pandemic—and and just overall humanity of of governmental and societal approaches. It is a life or death thing how yeah. governments respond to pandemics. And so we wanted to frame this with the last large scale national global epidemiological crisis, which was the outbreak of the AIDS epidemic. Another example of the government ignoring a crisis early on, trying to kind of waffle in their response to it, mm-hmm. and how that affected American citizens. Yeah, consequent deaths from it, certainly. I mean, it's it's a cautionary tale with a lot of similarities. We have, like, a TV movie star president, first of all, inaction from the executive, um, propaganda, and, and bigoted moralizing over policy and medicine. Obviously, there are also big differences between the two epidemics. Largely, there are practical differences about the diseases themselves and and treatment and science, which kind of highlights the fact that we have to inform the laws with science and medicine and keep ourselves informed. Rooted in science, absolutely. Yes. Kenzie referenced earlier the uh, differences in the the pandemic that we are facing today versus the epidemic that we were facing in the 80s one big thing I wanted to talk about is even though the two administrations, the Reagan administration in the 80s and the Trump administration now, even though both of their um, responses or lack of responses have been political in the 80s there was an extra element which was obviously homophobia and the reason why the the widespread deaths of these young men were ignored and why so little funding and research was put into it and people refused to acknowledge it for so long was bigotry. And I think that's really important to acknowledge before we start this conversation. Yeah. And I think that you see how a lot of these things, even though COVID affects everybody um, in Arizona, for example, you saw that on the reservation because they were absolutely a marginalized group with less funding and and less attention and just Less caring going towards them, that was where you saw the first outbreaks. Allocation so, of resources mm-hmm. is political. Um, at its core. And it does and indicate it always comes it's cared for. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, as we will discuss later in the episode, it as Mackenzie just said, it has come home to roost. It comes back to bite us. If we ignore problems out of um, ignorance and bigotry, whether it's toward a marginalized uh, group of people such as indigenous people or gay people, anyone in the LGBT community, it is going to blow yeah. up. Even something. if you lack humanity, it, it, it'll get you. We're all connected, and the reason why we take care of the most vulnerable is because we are stronger when we take care of the most vulnerable. That's one of the many That's many how reasons. you judge a society, right? How it treats its old people and children, right? Ay, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, even though HIV is no longer a death sentence, and it's certainly not guaranteed to turn into AIDS, and we know a lot more about transmission and, and how to prevent it, that was not the case in the early 1980s. So... My family, my the Joy family, was the quintessential big conservative Catholic family. They lived in New York. They actively campaigned for Ronald Reagan, among others. Um, my mom was the youngest of seven kids. Her youngest older brother was two years older than her, and that was Stuart. The family was thrust into the center of the HIV/AIDS crisis. Literally brought the issue home. Yes, it did. So Stuart Alexander Joy was a visual artist and creative who was born in Brooklyn in 1958. He was driven and vivacious. He graduated Duke University and designed for Liz Claiborne. He palled around with Debbie Harry at Studio 54 in New York City. There was one story of Mackenzie's mom and aunt driving into the city when they saw a man attracting a crowd in Washington Square Park. And it wasn't until they got closer that they realized that it was their brother, Stuart. (laughs) He was uh, the life of the party. He was um, always attracting people to him. Uh, In 1986, a year before Ronald Reagan even spoke the word AIDS publicly, Stuart was diagnosed with a virus that would kill him two years later at the age of 30. Toward the end, Stuart told his family that he was sad he wouldn't get to see how it all turned out. He was one of the many lives lost to AIDS in the early years of the AIDS crisis, when the government and society at large refused to acknowledge the reality of the widespread epidemic. So uh, we got a chance to meet for the first time via Zoom and discuss this with somebody who lived it. So uh, without further ado, here is our interview with John Asher.
1: Look, I, I think because I was in the arts, I kind of believe in like letting it just play and roll and play out. No limitations as far as creativity. I think if you start off with limitations initially, the rose doesn't get to bloom fully. I like that,
0: okay. I'm gonna let you introduce who you are to me and who Stuart is because I feel like that's more interesting than me doing it, so. Sure,
1: okay. Hi, Mackenzie and hi, Brooke. It's a pleasure to have this conversation with you guys. So um, we're seeing each other through Skype, which is sort of nice. Um, Because I've never really officially met you, Mackenzie, Uh, although I'm in a bizarre, distant way related. That's an air quote to you. I know your mom and your mom's family, the Joy family, from back in the early 1980s when I met your uncle, Stuart. Um, We were both working at a department store in the name of Abraham and Strauss was named
0: Okay. It was I called Abraham & and,
1: <laughs> and it's no longer in existence, but um, it was a great store at that point in time, and um, I was still in college, um, and your uncle had just graduated from Duke University, and he was in the retail management training program, so um, I would see him throughout the store, walking around or, you know, walking past the department. And I say, oh, that is a cute guy. And eventually we just started having conversation and we both decided, "Yeah, hey, oh, let's go out and have a drink or just go out for a social outing, which we did. And one thing led to another and... Suddenly, I had a boyfriend, and I was involved with Stuart Alexander Joy. So that goes back to like 1981, when it had all kind of started. Okay. Um, Then, by 1983, we decided to move in together. And he was living at home with his parents, your family. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And I was still living at home. I'm a few years younger than Stuart. Uh, So we, in 1983, we got our first apartment on the corner. It was on 435 East 76th Street, small one bedroom, but charming, and I remember, you know, acquiring certain things before we moved in together. We found some, you know, chairs in thrift shops, and we decided to reupholster them. And he anyways, did a
0: lot of that reupholstering and whatnot, right? Because I know he yes. did my mom's furniture. Surprise them when they came home from college.
1: Yep, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that is true. Um, and then after the the lease was up in 1984, we moved into a larger apartment, um, at, which was three, four, five East 80th street, apartment okay. 4k. <laughs> and, um, it was a rent stabilized apartment, really big apartment, oh my gosh super low rent. And, um, it's the gold so, mine in New York. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Which is really hard to find in New York. I don't know if those deals exist anymore, but mm. we had one, we had a really great, uh, sweet apartment. And again, we fixed that place up and, um, you know, we're living as a gay couple in New York. So the scene in the 1980s, just to bring you back because you <laughs> guys weren't born yet, no. <laughs> um, So New York was, look, there have always been and there will always be gay people. Mm. So um, that's Go <laughs> the beginning of time and will be till the end of time, but you know, it's always been kind of a taboo subject and it's been kind of hush hush. And that's where the term in the closet comes from, because you couldn't live an open, free life. Mm -hmm. And society wasn't willing to embrace that. And even families, you know, it was a scandal. So even though um, some families might have suspected or deep down inside known, it maybe just wasn't spoken about, because people just didn't come out.
0: Well, I meant uh, to ask, when you and Stuart moved in together, how did you couch that to your respective families? Because I know my family was very conservative. They were Catholic. My grandfather was the head of the conservative party on Long Island at one point. So obviously good people, I, I love them. But I think until certainly until the end of Stuart's life, they didn't fully acknowledge it as far as I know. So I'd be interested to know what your experience was. And I I understand that you came from a conservative family yourself.
1: I came from a conservative family as well. A Republican family, conservative points of view, also Catholic. In fact, the joke was your grandmother would always say, you know, why aren't any of these girls, anyone bringing home nice Catholic Boy, so you so,
0: did like you were the did only one. Yeah, so there
1: you go. There was a nice Catholic boy brought into the family. You're welcome. He, Joy was a family. Nice, he was a nice Catholic gay boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's a little curve in there. Um, you no, know, Lindsay married um, a Jewish guy, and your dad, I believe, was
0: he was a liberal atheist. So, a liberal
1: atheist. So, I mean, everyone was kind of Yikes. all over the board, yeah. but. Um, So someone brought home a Catholic boy, unfortunately. um, Stuart did well, yes. Stuart. (laughs) So uh, yes, everyone was kind of conservative. And so when we decided to move in, um, we always spoke in terms of roommates. Mm -hmm. Yes. Stuart was my roommate.
0: I thought that for a long time. I think my aunt believed what Stuart had told her, which is that it was a one bedroom, but that you rotated who slept on the couch. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Really? (laughs) But uh, I guess you believe what you want to believe.
1: Absolutely. This is true. And so, um, you know, it's funny that you say that. People say if you don't acknowledge the truth, it isn't true. But Yeah, right. um, So that will bring us to a conversation down the road with Ah. our current administration. Uh But anyway, um, so we did move in together. And um, back in the early 1980s, there was... Uh, a play, uh, what was called deemed the gay plague, mm-hmm. that was mm-hmm. sort of you would hear about and read about and hear about this up and coming disease. And initially, it was a disease that had only affected homosexuals, hemophiliacs, mm-hmm. supposedly horses, and Haitians. I, you know, so that's early. It's that's so really
0: specific. It's very strange.
1: It is very specific and very strange, but what, I don't know how. Haitians and horses got thrown in there. But, you know, now yeah. it makes sense about hemophiliacs and mm-hmm. homosexuals okay. in the sense that it's something that could have been transmitted through blood. Sure. But, you know, it was a, it was a disease that was affecting a certain part of society and a certain mm. people that, you know, not too many people paid attention to. Um, going back to like, oh, you know, we don't have gay people in our family or right. no one's mm. gay here or... Oh, you know they're they're mentally sick anyway, so they right. shouldn't. You know um, because again, homosexuality was thought of as an illness
0: yeah, at that right. point
1: in time, and earlier it was almost against the law. I think at one it point was in certainly well, in yes. the
0: cases that uh, struck down those laws are late '90s in a Supreme Court setting. So I. New York usually is the most progressive. If it wasn't happening here, those protections, it wasn't happening anywhere. Mm -hmm. So there was a Texas law I know that was addressed in a case that uh, it outlawed sodomy and it was only enforced, of course, against gay men. But that was struck down, I think, in the 90s. So it was against the law in some places.
1: (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So again, it was because it was affecting only a certain segment, what was deemed as maybe an undesirable or an unimportant group of people that, you know, people didn't pay too much attention to. But the CDC was aware of this mm-hmm. and what was transpiring and going on. They're smart, educated people. As they you know, still but- are. <laughs> Uh, yes and they you know they're they're aware of what's going on and what's out there mm-hmm. so it was brought up to the reagan administration because that's kind of when it's sort of going into full effect really starting to spread and become rampant and it was you know something that was in you know metro areas like manhattan new york mm-hmm. and san francisco and you know larger cities that had large groups of of the gay population. Um, But I don't know whether I should go into my own personal Part of this now.
0: Maybe Brooke, because Brooke actually did some research on the early days, and I think that actually might segue well into the years that certain things happened with Stuart. Yeah, so I believe what you were talking about with the Reagan administration being approached with the issue, there was a press conference in 82 mm-hmm. uh, where a reporter was talking to Larry Speaks, who was the uh, press secretary at the time. Yes. He brought it up, and it was laughed at. <laughs>
1: of this A-I-D-S, it's now an epidemic uh, over 600
0: cases, it's known as Gay Plague. <laughs> no, it yeah, is, I mean, it's a pretty serious thing, That one uh, in every three people that get it to die, and I wondered if the president is aware of it.
1: I don't have it. Are you? Do you? You don't have it. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Well, I you. I do you? you? Know. Do the name of the How do you know? Does The president, the White House looked on this as a great joke. No, I don't know anything about it, man.
0: Then it was brought up again in '84, '85, and of course, by that time there had been thousands of deaths. Yeah, I think think yeah. like Five thousand, over five thousand deaths. And when it was brought up again, it was they were making jokes about it and getting really yes. defensive. These well, <laughs> unfortunately, well, is well, 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 the disease
1: control The President is concerned about this subject. So sorry, right? that he have heard to a impression impression. of a Reaction here. I, you know, I have an It isn't over a going to do anything, Larry. No, so, I've not heard him express he anything no, uh, no, no opinion about this no, but I must confess I have asked you about. Would you ask
0: him, Larry? And that was, in, uh, I believe, '84. This is after thousands of people, um, yeah. you know. Many more cases, but thousands of people had already died, and uh, it was being—it was a joke in the—it was in the press. Even caring the about House. it was a joke, it, and it, it was also—if you think about how many folks knew—and this can kind of transition us to your experience with it—that um, I was speaking to my mom last night about it to just get a little bit of familial context, and she was working as a young nurse at the time. She's your age, and she self-described and recovering, very strong, conservative Catholic at the time too. And she said, you know, the difference is that I never felt hate for my brother, but there was a, a a grain in my mind of why can't you just be different? Just stop and it'll go away. And they were starting to notice things around 85. And my grandmother and grandfather had told my mom who was working out in Arizona in healthcare to avoid that population more out of fear because they didn't want her to get sick. And I I can't imagine that there wasn't a political undertone to it, but um, there certainly was a, a nationwide awareness that she's working in healthcare in Arizona the New York family's telling her to be careful. Yeah, and it's it certainly like no, no. <laughs> like when the when the rhetoric from the top, when the yes. messaging from the top, which was the White House, is mm-hmm. that uh, this is not something to be concerned about. And if anything, there was an element of of disdain and uh, mm-hmm. there's the you know homophobic jokes and, and otherism being made. Otherism, it's, it's, them, yeah. it's not. And yeah. if you care about this, if you're bringing it up, then uh, you're going then to you're be determined. shamed. Yeah. And and so I, I wanted to ask you about you know around that time how, what. What was the, in your experience, uh, the community's feelings around that kind of rhetoric coming from the Oval Office?
1: Sure. the uh, You're absolutely correct in terms of the press conference. And when it was brought to um, the attention, when it was brought up in a press conference and asked about was it whether uh, President Reagan was aware, or if he had, or was you know, in tune with what was going on, um, this disease that was affecting a certain population in the United States. It was sort of laughed at and snickered and hmm. put back on the, the reporter who had asked the question, you know, it was kind of like it was taboo yeah. and like you were bad, dirty, or it might implicate that you might be gay. Well, um <laughs> And yeah, uh, that they laughed at it, snickered at it, and moved on to the next subject. Mm. So, uh, and it was, again, brought up again, um, I'm sure many times, but it was, uh, again, because it was affecting a certain audience that just somehow didn't matter or register and it wasn't Mm. deemed as, and that's inexcusable, but kind of indicative of the times, you Mm. know, uh, in terms of affecting a group that somehow didn't matter and no one was out or stating that they were out. So it was kind of all hush hush. And if you wound up having it, it was almost like this negative stigma and you were, you know, an out, almost like an outcast of society at that point in time. Um, unlike today's administration where COVID is affecting any and everyone, yeah. um, which is, you know, and still being downplayed, ignored, and deemed as nothing that's life-threatening where it is. And in actuality, when you think back into the 1980s and the beginning of AIDS, because it what it did start within the gay community, but eventually spread it could be spread to any and everyone.
0: But the lack it wasn't of foresight just is remarkable. Like how do you
1: <laughs> Yeah. Um, so if you really think about it, it's like how one person affects another person or it passes okay. to one person that goes on to two people to four to eight. Mm-hmm. And it just keeps multiplying and, and becoming larger and larger, just like COVID does, you know, mm-hmm. and la- large groups of people. I mean, obviously the way it's transmitted is very different, mm-hmm. but um, so uh, I'll get back to my did I did I answer the question, Brooke? As far as oh yeah
0: uh, yeah, did you did the community register at all that? they were kind of being left behind and all this and
1: ignored? Yes. I mean, when, of course, anything that would affect your own community, you take an, a greater interest in. And so there was a discussion amongst the gay community, like there's this disease that's going out there mm-hmm. and, you know, it's killing people and it cripples your immune system and it's passed on sexually and... Yeah. You know, if you think about society in general, when you say someone was in the closet, because society didn't embrace gays, there was really no place for a gay man to go out and meet another gay man. Hmm, So you would either meet them in a gay bar or, you know, walking on the street, deemed as cruising, you know, where you would pass each other and look you know, yeah. check each other out. And because people were so closeted, there was really nowhere to go. You couldn't go to a bar and speak intimately. Right. I mean, of course you could, but you know, it's not like going out on a, a date would be the same as for an accepted heterosexual right. Right. couple. And so there were all kinds of crazy sex clubs mm-hmm. and back rooms and bars where you could go and be intimate with someone because. No, you, if you were living at home, you couldn't bring them home to your mother of and course, father. Yeah. Oh, hi, this is my boyfriend. Because yeah. it was a time when it just wasn't socially accepted.
0: It's funny so, I never put together that that kind of arose yeah, out of necessity, right? That it was you didn't yeah. even have safe spaces, so you had to create your own safe spaces yeah, to meet that each other. Yeah. By themselves kind of became concentrated and for this kind of thing that could be the worst thing, but yeah. how do you have how do you know that's going right, yeah. right. A- to happen? Right, right.
1: absolutely. That. And so it you know, it's almost like all aspects of society weren't acknowledging it, so the administration wasn't going to acknowledge okay. it and it's kind of worked hand in hand. Yeah. And it's wrong obviously and was not effective because it kind of exploded. Yeah. Um compared to today's pandemic when mm. you know it affects everyone. You can just yeah. be walking in a grocery store and right. someone might sneeze and next thing you know poof you've got the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there are parallels but there are Uh, obvious differences.
0: I think it's also a good example of how dangerous shame and stigma and an anti-science view of something can be because it it really marginalizes people who are suffering when you you can't... um, you know, again, like you said, there wasn't a lot of concern in this society at large. And so the administration reflected that, but that caused it to blow up because there was a stigma around it. Mm-hmm. It's just... It's, and I think Reagan really paved the way for this administration to absolutely be allowed to do that weird, moralistic politicizing yeah. of... I mean, anti-science. Yeah. And, yeah so. Yes.
1: And that's why the message from the top is an important one. Yes. No. Because even smart, educated people hear what they want to hear or hear certain things that come from the most sure. important person in the world. I'll deem him as that. Right. Um, I certainly don't think Donald Trump is the most important person in the world. Unfortunately, he has that.
0: He's sitting in that chair, chair right now. Tower. He's yeah. sitting yeah. in that
1: chair and I don't think he's really up... For the job. Um, yeah. He say the same of Reagan 40. at the
0: time, another yes. Hollywood person yes. who kind of. former over policy guy. It was a propaganda campaign yeah. more than anything else. So. Yes. And
1: <laughs> it's dangerous.
0: Just to, to move it back to your personal experience with it. Um, I guess we can talk about uh, when Stuart was diagnosed. Sure, and if we're talking about the 84 press conference, I that's think that's an off point. Yeah, that's certainly when my aunt Allie was married in 85, and my family said that Stuart was different to their eyes. Yes,
1: so. so your uncle was fashion designer, handbags and belts, mm-hmm. I was a shoe designer. Um, so in 1984, when we had moved into um, our second apartment Stuart was working with Liz Claiborne.
0: Mm, Actually wearing that now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, for crying out loud. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Um, He was working for Liz Claiborne and traveling the world and in a, a, a job that he loved. But, you know, in 1984, he started saying how he was tired a lot of the time, exhausted, and, you know, we thought, nothing of it because we never thought that that was at our threshold Um, and we deemed it as well he travels the world he's got jet lag always working really late hours Um, Stuart had a bit of a wild side in him though so when he would go out he would really go out and have a great time and sometimes (laughs) not come home and so I, you know, there were a few nights where I was like, oh, I'm working a little bit late. I was like, okay, don't worry. I have dinner ready, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And so I would wait till like 8, 9, 10, 11, and then call the office and say like, you know, and wonder if he was coming home. And there were no cell phones, didn't exist right. back then. Right. So you couldn't check in. And so his phone would ring, 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 and his, his office phone, and I never answered. And so I was like, you know, I guess he went out and or, or whatever and you know, and then next morning would come and um might show up, but hmm. you know, there were times where he didn't come home for a couple of days. So uh and What's so that's stressful that kind of for
0: you? I mean
1: Extremely stressful yeah. and disappointing because yeah. you know, um the most there was one New Year's Eve where I had prepared a really big dinner wow. and again just never came home. And then yeah. I got a phone call on New Year's Day. I think it was like 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Mm. And, you know, he was really out of it. He didn't know where he was and um, called me from a payphone mm. because that's how you communicated with right. people. And um, I said, just stay there. And I jumped in the car and went down and picked him up and got him home. So we... No, I, you know, just never putting, sometimes when there's, where there's smoke, there's fire, but you yeah. never put the pieces, I never put the pieces of the puzzle together. Sure. So we're being a little bit wild and being out and not coming home certain times. And then when he was working, how when he was home, how he was not feeling well and tired. Um, and this went on for... A few years until 1986, when um, he started getting fevers mm. and very, very bad night sweats, and um, something just clearly wasn't right. Right. So I remember his his temperature was so sky high. Mm. He took. I got him in a cold bath, tried to get his body temperature down, and we went to the emergency room. And um, that's when I guess he spoke. I mean, I wasn't allowed in because I wasn't deemed family. So he was in with the doctor, and I guess they, um, you know, did some tests and you know through conversation. Not that you would get immediate results, but they were indicating that that was indeed the case. And um, and then I remember him coming home saying that he was HIV positive. And. I was really just, you know, I felt like the rug was pulled out from underneath my really? feet. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of like um, when you, when someone is so ill and they're around, they keep holding on, holding on. Uh-huh. Um, and then eventually when, you, and you know that eventually something's going to happen, come, but even when right. it happens, it, mm. it's still kind of devastating. Of
0: course. Um, so it, you so, weren't surprised though, per se, but it was... It was... Assaulting, kind of?
1: Yes. Yeah. It was really... um, And of course, very concerned for Stuart, but then I was also very concerned for myself because I was, you know, kind of a victim of circumstance. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um,
1: You know, uh, so that was brought into our household. And as I said earlier, um, if you were deemed as HIV positive, you... at that point in time, there were no cures. There were no real drugs. It was so, still so new that um, it was like, okay, you got this. And usually you start the clock and two years yeah. or less is what your life sentence becomes.
0: Yeah. Even at that point, so if 86, um, the administration had been aware, I believe, since yeah. 83 yes. and so least, little money. Yeah. yeah. Or resources were allocated toward treatment or research so of course there w- wasn't you know a cure or treatment because nothing had been done about it yeah. for three years.
1: That is very true Brooke yes and so um, was a very scary position to be in and I was 24, 25, 26 oh. years old you know starting working and you know not really having a a lot of money between us, and you know, just being young, when we should be thinking about like what vacations we're going to be going on and what parties <laughs> yeah. we're going to be going to and where we're going out on Friday night or for the weekend and what friends we're going to see, it automatically shifted like, oh my god, what, what are we going to do? Uh,
0: I'm so sorry. Um, what not. month did he get diagnosed? I'm just trying to think about when
1: I think it was
0: suspicions arose
1: in a more. <laughs> I don't know whether it was like August or September of 1986, I think.
0: So I only ask because I know that my mom had told us about a conversation that she had with him out in Arizona. And it was before a formal diagnosis. And he said, I think I have this rash in my mouth. And it, it was oral thrush. And it was so obviously oral thrush to her. Which, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, is a fungal infection that was a real marker at the time of um, HIV specifically because it it preys on a weak immune system, and that you is don't correct. really see young people getting that.
1: That mm. is so correct. Yes.
0: My mom said that looking, because she was in her she she was looking in his mouth, and she knew in that moment that he was probably going to die. And she told him, I love you. You can tell me whatever you want. Go talk to dad. Because your grandpa was a physician right? right? And he was conservative, obviously, but she thought, I don't think dad will turn him away, but he'll know what to do. But Stuart didn't tell her anything specific. I don't think he came out expressly at the time. But certainly.
1: He did not. Again, the fear.
0: Yeah, Mm, of course. And the stigma. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, You know, and. also at that point in time, as people were being diagnosed with this, you would read about how, or hear about how um, families were rejecting their own sons. And so then not only were they ill, they had no no family support, nowhere to go. And it was uh, a really difficult judgment or, you know, that was really like oh my god like talk about your world your life and your world and everything crumbling and when so, you need it most
0: you need ab- family ab- or money or support or something
1: absolutely and um and there was no cure so it wasn't like okay well if i go to the doctor and i take mm. this i'll get better uh, or if i have this procedure they'll remove it and you mm. know i've got a chance it was like there was no chance really mm-hmm. um so Stewart uh, eventually did speak to his parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you no, know, after he had shared with me, uh, you know, I was like, and I know he was fearful to talk to his dad about it, your grandfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and but he did, and um, he was sick at that point in time, and I think he had to go to. Hospital where your grandfather was working, which was Nassau County Medical Center, I believe. Okay. And uh, he was admitted, and they did some tests. And I remember speaking to your grandfather, Hmm. Dr. Joy, and, um, you know, I know that Stu was experiencing something that was because it attacked all aspects of your immune system. And so um, he was having pain where anything, like even, Um, to lay a sheet on top of him Mm. was excruciatingly painful. So I remember your grandfather saying he couldn't even put a sheet on him even though he was shivering and then sweating from fever and chills. Yeah. But they somehow got him the symptoms under control for the time being. But that was just a temporary fix. Yeah. And as the disease progressed... Your immune system continues to break down, and you become more susceptible. There was um, something called um, PCP, pneumocystic pneumonia, Mm -hmm. which it floats in the air. Like you and I are, we're all breathing it at the here and now. But when you have a healthy immune system, it's you just you're not susceptible to it. So, um, you know that was always very dangerous for anyone who is HIV positive. And there was also something, physical markings that would appear in your body called Kaposi's sarcoma. And you would get large red blotches. So on top of physically deteriorating, like you just lost all kind of muscle tone and you, you would lose weight, And so, you know, many times AIDS victims look like, you know, skeleton with skin just draped on them. Mm. You would also have these bright purple-red markings on you. And so you truly became like outcasts in society. branded,
0: yeah. Yes.
1: Um, Like Hester Prynne in The Scarlet Letter. Stuart never had any of the marks, the Kaposi's sarcoma. But he did have pneumocystic pneumonia twice. And um, again, through meds and antibiotics, somehow came out of both of those. But was, you know, even though he would survive that episode, was still deteriorating in other ways. And I remember being at your grandparents' house with Stuart one time and we were watching some television. I had just come over to visit and he, we were talking and all of a sudden he had a seizure, Mm. a very bad seizure. And I remember him just falling and seeing his body flailing on the ground. Um, And I was, I ran down the steps and got your grandfather and grandmother Very scary, very frightening. Um, What did they do? Your grandfather got it under control, Mm. and then we knew that he had to go to the hospital or be Mm. further checked. And I remember him, because he was sitting on the edge of the bed, and then when he started having the convulsion, fell over and, like, scraped his head and was bleeding a little bit, and that is very... You know, you couldn't be around blood because, right. you know, you could be... Oh,
0: gosh, yeah. You could,
1: and, you know, it was just all around scary. And again, we're like young guys in our 20s. <laughs> yeah. You know, our 20s. We shouldn't be dealing with this kind of thing. Right. But somehow we were living it. It became our life, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah. How did the family handle it? Did They allow you to come over freely. Um, I know obviously they, so both of my grandparents retired to take care of Stuart, but they also, uh, my grandmother's still conservative to this day. Uh, I think my grandfather was until he died. So it was kind of a cognitive dissonance that I know went further than a lot of parents did. Uh, It's just interesting, both of you being good Catholic boys. um, How was that?
1: Well, it's interesting you know, again, going back to Catholics where the Catholic Church at that point in time also had Mm. deemed homosexuals as intrinsic moral evils
0: Mm, Nicely put
1: (laughs) So it's like Okay. Um, Yeah.
0: So you can't even find comfort if you are a person of faith and you were raised, you know, in the church, which I I I had a religious background as well. And I know that for some people, even if you um, aren't a part of the church anymore, a practicing member, it's still something that you could potentially find comfort in. And now you're even being rejected and uh, demonized by this place that you could have otherwise potentially found comfort. It's what turned my mom away from the church. She... Yes. After he died, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so um, I wasn't present for the conversations that Stuart had with Mm -hmm. his parents. Um, But your grandparents rose to the occasion. I don't know what they said Hmm. um, when they were in bed together speaking about the situation, but they did rise to the occasion. And your grandfather expressed great concern for my health.
0: And oh, be okay. Okay. Um,
1: and that was very kind. And he had said, obviously, I have to go start being tested on a regular basis yeah. um, because you just don't know. Yeah. And he checked me out several times. As far as um, one indication was. the the thrush which Mm -hmm. I never had Um, swollen lymph nodes in either your neck or under your arms or in your Mm -hmm. groinal area extreme swollen lymph nodes Um, and your grandfather would check me out uh, on a a semi-regular basis and I started going to my own doctor who was a gay doctor oh that's Um, great (laughs) yeah you know living in New York Mm-hmm. It, you know I would ask friends like i didn 't have a physician I had a family physician, but it wasn 't certainly a conversation I was comfortable having with yeah. the same physician that my parents and brothers of and course. sisters would go to, so I had my own physician in New York, and I was tested on a regular basis on a yearly basis for okay. you know supposedly the virus can live in was able to live inside of you for up to twenty years without showing
0: Wow. Symptoms. yeah interesting so
1: from you know, my mid twenties until almost my fifties. Yeah, like, I would relatively always, recent. Yeah. I mean like ten about wow. ten years ago would always be fearful. And you know, as time went on, the doctors say, No, you know, that's because it's you know, You're more doing was okay learned for this about, long, you know. Yes, yeah. And I've been okay for that long, but um, you know, but even so every time i would go for a blood test just always living in fear was yeah. t- a bit of torment yeah. um but getting back to stuart he um stuart had become debilitated yeah. beyond being able to come back to the apartment because i just couldn't yeah. you know it would. i couldn't handle it anymore
0: of course fair um, enough yeah
1: <laughs> i didn't you know again in my 20s i just didn't know if or when something might happen. And, you know, you come from a family of doctors and nurses, right. everyone in your mm-hmm. family.
0: They were uniquely equipped to, to yes. deal with that. And God so. bless him. When you're talking about my grandfather checking you out, it's good that he did, but this is a man who also at, at dinner parties, my aunt would bring a boyfriend home, you know, trying to make a good impression. And my, my grandfather would be like, so Allie, how are your bowels? <laughs> okay, yeah. good. So he's if, if, a very, 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 very open man.
1: <laughs> um, when we maybe. had...
0: Little intrusive. It was
1: dinner conversation because everyone Uh was a medical professional. So speaking about bodily fluids or bodily functions or a disease. um, I'll tell you
0: that persists to this day, for better or worse.
1: (laughs) Was actually, you know, I guess commonplace, where Uh it's something that in my house we didn't ever speak of that even. (laughs) But yes, your grandfather really showed uh, his professional his kind and professional side to me um, out of concern, because Mm. he did recognize that I was kind of a victim of circumstance there. Of
0: course, yeah.
1: And, um, But as I was saying, Stuart was debilitating more and more, and it was really necessary for him to be where someone was present. All the time,
0: yeah, yeah, um,
1: and a medical professional, doctor and nurse, yeah, was always we were lucky in that
0: sense, yeah, certainly.
1: So um, he got sick one more time, and that was in the summer in July, yes. and this is 1988, and he was admitted to the hospital, and it was Cabrini Medical Center, ah, okay, which was in Lower Manhattan, and that was the hospital that his. AIDS doctor because he had a doctor that was specifically um, mm-hmm. involved with HIV research
0: Okay. and
1: he he was admitted to that hospital and got worse and worse and I remember I don't remember who called me to tell me that he had there's a term in medical speak code blue hmm. and I think that's coronary arrest uh, okay he, have to either be resuscitated or not and they resuscitated Stuart. Mm -hmm. he was put on life support at that point with um uh breathing tube Mm. and um and i remember at that point in time we just sort of knew the end was coming yeah Um, and your grandmother would go every single day every single day to visit Stuart. And I would meet her during the day Hmm. um, for a couple of hours or in the evening. And um, I remember on, because Stuart died August, 1988. I remember- And Lindsay got
0: married a couple days before he was supposed to go to the wedding. Yes. And he had that decline, right?
1: Yes. In fact, I I was with him that whole day that Lindsay got (laughs) married and he- he was most concerned because he had, had no one had. He was like he wasn't able to shower, and his hair yeah. he's like oh, <laughs> a mess. And so I remember washing his hair for him. Oh. Because that was really important to him. So oh. I don't remember when he had the coronary arrest, but we knew that the end was coming. Mm-hmm. And I would just remember how distraught your grandmother was.
0: God, yeah.
1: Um, And how, you know, he was on life support and how your grandmother kept saying, like, I don't care, I don't care, he can stay this way. Um, I'll take care of him this way. (sighs)
0: She, yeah. I know that she offered to just bring him home and keep him in the attic like that. Just keep um, him... I can't, can't imagine. No, no it's really okay. Fine. Of course it's, I can't imagine. It was such a cruel disease. Yeah. I, I think that it's happened so quickly. You know, you, like you said, as soon as someone was diagnosed, they knew that they the were... starts yeah starts, yeah. Yeah, they had, a, they had a limited amount of time left. Yeah. And you don't even get good time because... Yeah. It, it it just ravages Sassy. your body, and yeah. it's just such a it's just a difficult being you know, a loved one of that person. I can't imagine what it was like. You especially, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, mean, just, I think everybody was in their own head, and and in retrospect, my mom has said, "I wish I had." Had the wherewithal to know what what you were going through because she
1: was just and know. at that point in time, you know, it's not even like you could say you could say like, oh, hi, I'm Stuart's partner, and no. I could yeah. hear test results or ask for information about his current condition because I hmm. wasn't family, so yeah. I never really knew other than what was. And your grandparents and your sister, your sisters, your mom <laughs> and your aunts were always. I was always aware. But it's not like I could ever ask or find out. Because but that's as good like, as it well, got, who's kind ca- of. who's yeah, calling? Yeah. I'm like, right. well, this is his partner. Like, well, you're not family. We can't reveal any information to you. So it was, I, I swear, I remember being in the apartment alone when he was in the hospital and like lighting a candle and keeping okay. that burning for him because I wasn't sure if he was going oh to be able to sleep with him or see him the next day. And
0: Aww, what a strange um, thing.
1: It was, but after he was in almost a coma and just on life support, we all knew it was just really, it was no way out. You were just down a dead end street with a brick wall in front of you. So you to don't turn come back. It doesn't no, no, it was, it. it was really the end. I remember back then there were things called, um, Sony Walkman.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah.
1: (laughs) And I remember putting music on and putting it on Stuart's head because he loved Blondie and he loved the talking heads. All all great
0: bands, um, yeah. Yeah,
1: so I remember putting music on, uh, putting earphones on him and, you know, whether he heard it or not, obviously, but I thought he would. Yeah. Um, just so that it was something that he related to and happy. Uh, I did that that night, and we all were in that room. Mm-hmm. We all stayed, he was in a private room, we all were in that room the night that he passed.
0: Yeah, mom and- said you, her, and my grandparents were there. Yes,
1: yes, we were there. <laughs> And we all took turns from your grandfather nodding off.
0: Oh. and
1: your grandmother occasionally, it was close to like four three or four in the morning when he passed. and I just <sighs> sorry.
0: It's okay. I take your time. Yeah.
1: I remember walking out just in such disbelief. Because even though, like I was saying earlier, even though you know that, I just could not believe it. And I remember your grandparents and your mom driving me uptown, dropping me off at the apartment. They asked, did I want them to come upstairs with me? Um, Because it was the first time I was gonna go into the apartment. And I said, no, 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 no. And I knew that your grandmother, that everyone had more or less been up almost all night long. And I just remember going upstairs Mm. in such disbelief, and breaking down. God, I can't
0: imagine alone.
1: (laughs) But then I was like, oh, my God, I have to start to tell people the next steps when you're Catholic, you know, there's going to be a wake and there's going to be a funeral. And what am I going to say to everybody? And I hadn't really shared the truth with my family that Stuart was HIV. I'd said he had leukemia. You know, I had to come up with a quick one.
0: No, it's easier. It's,
1: yeah, because at one point in time, my dad was also dying at the exact same time, and my dad died. Oh my god! Um, August two, three months after. school. Oh. And my dad needed um, blood, and not every, he couldn't accept everyone's blood, and I had his type, so oh. I was asked to donate. My I was expected to donate blood, and I had to come and say I can't donate blood because. Well, I'm why? Not... Why can't you? And you know, uh, it was just all around the the lying and the What did you hiding. say? I said uh, there was a possibility I was, I, I, I was exposed, or you know, I was in contact with sure. something. Sure. Okay. But, you know, and mm. but I, I. Couldn't donate blood because you I wasn't even allowed to donate blood, even if right. I really, oh, right. I couldn't say, like, yeah, of course I would have given my father blood. He needed it. So, you know, coming home at that point in time saying, Well, what am I gonna tell my parents? Oh, Stuart had died, and what am I going to tell my friends? And You know, and my close friends, like Edward, was our friend. Right, yeah, of course, because
0: the family knew him as well, yeah.
1: (laughs) Yes, so I had a few close friends to say what had transpired, but other than that, I didn't know how to really share with anyone and to say, like, oh, well, in the living in fear, like, oh, my God, if my mother and my family go, Mm because they knew Stuart, he was in our home so many times, and they knew him, say, like, Oh my God! So my mother, and my sister, my brothers go to the wake, and they find out like he was HIV, and uh, you know, just again, then you're stuck in and, then, yeah. in and you know, and not speak, sharing the full truth right. out of fear
0: so you go through all this trauma and you lose someone who's deeply important to you and then you don't even get the support system you don't even get the the ability to tell you know your the people around you your acquaintances your uh, employers or Whatever it is, like you, you don't get right. the um, what would be expected in other situations absolutely. of that, that acknowledgement right. of your loss. Yes,
1: yeah. absolutely, that is that is true. So it's like it's just insult to injury, right. mm-hmm. um, Over and know, over, really, yeah. over and over. Now, getting back to the Reagan administration, huh. yeah. when the Reagan administration was starting to acknowledge the presence of AIDS, it was because Ronald Reagan was a former Hollywood actor um when you know because it was becoming more and more in the public eye about hiv liberaci who was uh. deemed as being sick because he was you know and he said he because he was on the watermelon diet that's why he was what? yes okay Go, google it google it <laughs> <A> watermelon <laughs> um, diet and also uh than rock hudson who was a yeah. good friend of ron and nancy reagan and when he died then there was starting to be some acknowledgement within the administration um you know because it was hitting close to home and anthony fauci was at that point yes, in time very involved that. with aids research and of course there were gay activists you know act up and gmhc yeah. they always embrace his points of view. Oh, that there, right. was yeah. right, there, was there was some yeah,
0: Right, because there was that Larry Kramer disagreement yes. with Fauci, I believe, but they yes. remained friends? I,
1: yes. Yeah. Very much so. So, Anthony Fauci has been around a very, very Good. long time, and he is indeed a very smart-slash-brilliant doctor. Yeah. The guy just keeps on ticking and going. Uh-huh. But, it just uh, up in the Giuliani
0: episode. too. We were looking at some of the Act Up posters, and they had yeah, was it? it was a it was an Act Up poster. I believe he only had, had a second. heart. Yeah, and he he was the Tin Man, and it said if you if Giuliani only had a heart, he would. Uh, address AIDS, basically. I actually
1: remember that. I actually remember that. Now that you mentioned that, yeah. So
0: go figure that both of them have turned up again. <laughs> they appear on some the yeah. same sides that they were on before.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I can't even get into the Giuliani conversation. Oh for, God, I know. About, um,
0: um, I actually did have a question. Just following up. So you said that after the death of Brock Hudson and the Reagan administration started to um, acknowledge it more publicly, did you see a, a change in how um, society? approached, you know, the general public approached uh, HIV-AIDS?
1: Yes and no, because I think until it it started becoming like everyone was more aware of it because it was in the news mm-hmm. and it was out there mm-hmm. um, and you would hear about celebrities and so it was becoming a bit more mainstream. It was still v- something that was very taboo and f- fearful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, it got to the point where if you, uh I think everyone either knew of someone or had someone in their family that was gay or was sick. Um mm-hmm. I shouldn't say everyone, but it just became a bit more out there. The kitchen and there a kitchen
0: table issue, more of a kitchen yes, table and, issue. Yes, yeah. and
1: uh, there was greater awareness. And then hence, we'll fast forward into like the 1990s when mm-hmm. TV sitcoms like Will and Grace were on, and you know, it became more commonplace to have, you know, a gay person in your living room. That's through television, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and they're like, "Oh wow, they're funny. They can dance and decorate, and Gays. they're professional. You know, exactly. Um, like Will was a lawyer, and yeah. and look, t- today in two thousand twenty, you know, young kids are not afraid to come out of the closet and be their true self mm-hmm. um, at a very early age. And yeah. I think that there's, there's still a long way to go, yeah. but it, it has come such a long way in a short period of time. And there's still the stigma and the prejudice out there. Just like to deny that there's systemic racism in this country mm-hmm. of course, is bullshit. French, <laughs> no, um, yeah. because there are it is out there, yeah. and there's still homophobia out there, and there's still um, prejudice and a lot of ignorance. A lot yeah. of ignorance.
0: Yeah, it is and, that lack of exposure and familiarity, uh, which is why I think things like bringing someone into your living room is such a powerful factor. Representation is so important yeah. in that situation. because if you're from the Midwest and you've never met a gay person or a black person or you know a woman who's had an abortion, it's ah, oh, it's yeah. it's very, um, it's easy to fear monger if. There's no familiarity. Yeah, so if your are turns to bubble. anger Absolutely. pretty quickly. Something you mentioned about how quickly it's moved hmm. is something I, I wanted to ask you about because something that Mackenzie and I are stunned by yeah. is how much um, has happened in the last, you know, uh, 40 years what? even. And really, particularly the last 20, Absolutely. because Obergefell was 2015. No, recent, and that was the gay marriage case, obviously yeah. the Supreme Court case. But even uh, you know, you're talking about how stigmatized and uh, taboo it was in the '80s, and you're, like you said, now everyone knows, everyone has at least in their cities. yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. But um, I I did want to ask you about what has it been like hmm. to live through that of uh, you know. 40 years ago you were fearful to tell people about um in your life about it and and especially with uh go out on a date yeah you couldn't go out on a date you couldn't um meet people you couldn't take them home there was uh there was little or no public support for it what has it been like for you watching that change
1: over the last 40 years i've been very fortunate and edward as well in the fact that you know we live in new york city and you know um that has a lot to do, uh, you know, New York, any and everything goes, as you <laughs> ladies know. Um, and it's a great city and Excellent. people care, but they really don't care. And, yeah. um, you know, it's...
0: You're never going to be the weirdest one on the
1: subway. So no. Yeah. And it's really not... a. I mean, we're fortunate in the sense that there's a big gay community there. We're accepted. Um, You can live in an apartment building or have a neighbor and there's Mm -hmm. really, it's all okay. Mm -hmm. Um, But that mentality along the East Coast and the West Coast, Mm -hmm. yes, of course, when you get into Southern states, there's still prejudice, as I was saying, but I think it's the people in that whole center of the country that, you know, lack of exposure, like you were saying, Mackenzie, and education, and just yeah. not knowing the fearmonger, yep. like you we were both saying. Yeah, um, I feel bad for anyone who's gay growing up in yeah. the middle America because you know um, it's all okay. You know, no matter what, we all pay, we all bleed, <laughs> we pay taxes. We love our mothers. We're God fearing. Yeah. I mean, we're law abiding citizens. We're human beings, and so yeah. it's like it really ultimately should not matter who you Why sleep with care? No, absolutely, and, blah, yeah. and it makes us no better or no less than anyone else yeah. and to think that again the current administration has is doing some things where being fearful of having rights taken away from us once mm-hmm. again um where it's like
0: gender ban in the military yeah, right? absolutely
1: <laughs> and not being allowed to fly flags you know the 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 rainbow flag. And it's just all these little things that fuel the conservative right that, mm-hmm. you know, we're outcasts or freaks or mentally ill. Again, mm-hmm. all of that coming up. So, although we've advanced, we saw so much more, so many more milestones to right, uh- uh, mm-hmm. accomplish. Um, like marriage was
0: just a, a piece of the puzzle. And I think you see things like, um, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and and Mike Pence, God being, Mike Pence yeah. was responsible for the biggest HIV outbreak since the 90s when he was governor of Indiana. And now he has and, the task force.
1: And believing in conversion therapy. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Still. So
0: like you see them, I think a lot of it flies under the radar because uh, there are so many more blatant things happening every day, but they sneak these things in and I don't think that it's an accident. It's hideous, yeah. It's little by little. And
1: it's really, I mean, I'll draw you a comparison to like, too. let's go back to the 1950s when the black community, you know, couldn't drink out of a, a same water fountain or couldn't even walk yeah. into a restaurant. Well, they're working the on that dining. too. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, wait a minute. A, a t- Time moves forward and we should be advancing. And
0: Roe is on the table again. That it's been 50 years since Roe v. Wade and still and yeah, a- we're absolutely. back on the jumping block. I, I don't know. Uh- so, and
1: it is ridiculous. And I'd
0: say the same about HIV legislation absolutely. that a lot yeah. of it is still um, around where it was in the 80s. There are still a lot of laws on the books in places like Arizona, even that allow you to forcefully quarantine somebody who tests HIV positive. Essentially, no questions asked if a public health official commands it. And that is, it's not an effective disease containment strategy, sex education would be. Yeah. Um, access to care, access, access to, to information. yeah, yeah. protection. Yeah. And- Testing, healthcare, like it's, it, those are the things that would actually help if we're concerned about it. But the laws I think came about in that fear-mongering place and that's where they've stayed, yeah. despite medical progression that now,
1: So now far from a through, deficit. you know, perseverance, Yeah, education, um, research, um, and the fact that it really doesn't affect just people that are gay or hemophiliacs, it can affect any and everyone. And um, yeah, I mean, it's almost like saying you have diabetes. Well, with proper care and medication, you can live... Life that that's incredible. That's really, really. That's pretty
0: fast mm-hmm. turnover on that front. If you mm-hmm. think about it in that perspective, so it's good. But it required attention and resources, yes. and it required yeah. research. That so that can be our plug for the end of the and, episode. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And
1: and, and a, there, lot, oh, of a yes. lot of lives. A lot of lives. We've
0: done this a decade earlier, which seems like it probably was feasible. Yeah. And actually, uh, that was something that, you know, I I know we're kind of wrapping up, but something that really struck me is that, you know, you you look at numbers like, I believe, again, by 1984, uh, about 5,000 people had had passed. And that number, when you consider that it was uh, largely Uh, concentrated concentrated groups in the gay community in like San Francisco and New York and a couple other big cities, Um, small communities of people who are really tight knit and just the the, the level of loss Mm -hmm. of life of your friends. And I, I was, Talking to about Kenzie at this day, but I can't imagine, you know, in our community, um, uh, there's a quote by, from Larry Kramer, and I believe 1983, and he was talking to a reporter and he oh, said, Who was it? It was the guy. Jane Pauly. Jane Pauly, yes. Yeah. And he said, How would you feel if you'd lost 20 of your friends this year? And she said something like, I, I would be upset. And he goes, Yeah, we're very angry. But it's this idea <laughs> yeah. of yeah. just The, the volume gay community of that. was so tightly knit, especially because for a lot of people, they didn't tell their families so that it was a chosen family losing just so many people you love. I I just can't the imagine. Talented folks too. Cause these are the ones yeah, who got out and did their thing. Got and into the cities and were really bright. Uh, uh, beautiful so the playwrights souls. and yeah, the artists and the dancers and, the dancers so, and the writers. Yeah. I, really a, I mean, I would like to hear about it. If you'd like to say anything, but it's more of an acknowledgement, I guess, just yeah. of, of how big of a loss that was for people at that time.
1: Absolutely. I mean, look, there, it, it is a very close knit, tight community. And a lot of people, star, uh, artists and extremely musicians and talent, all these young lives lost that, you know, for for really, I don't want to say no reason, that we're, we're just lost and yeah.
0: very yeah. sad. Yeah.
1: I stayed in the apartment that I was uh-huh. in with Stuart until 2008. So because oh my it was God a rent old apartment. Oh, right,
0: yes. right. And,
1: and Everett and I became involved in 1990.
0: Okay, so a while.
1: <laughs> yeah, and two years ago, we got married. Edward oh, and I got married. congratulations. That's yes. yes. so exciting. Thank you. And we said, we better do it before Trump takes that Honestly, right away from us. Oh,
0: yeah, I understand that. But
1: enough. So we th- that's where we are. But anyway... Well,
0: Thank you so so much. Yeah, we so appreciate um, talking to you. That this was and you and I really will lightning. continue our conversation. I'm sure on many. All right, we uh, we're just so grateful to be able to talk to John. He's uh, such a lovely soul, and his story really shed light on the very human part of this issue. I think that it's so easy to talk about the AIDS crisis in abstract, in uh, any epidemic, I absolutely, think. absolutely especially in the, especially in the past. Mm-hmm. And um, we were so grateful to be able to hear it from him directly, and just uh, just the, his generosity and sharing his time and his story. And his heart with us. And uh, vulnerability. You and absolutely. I both are, are working on our vulnerability, and I, I love that. It's In not that, easy to talk about something like this, and yeah. we, we were so um, thankful that he was willing to. In that spirit, I would reiterate everything, so grateful to have talked to him, and I'm really grateful to Brooke that she was willing to indulge oh, a personal, familial experience. It's such an important topic, and obviously, yeah, Stuart Joy was um, hmm. a, a wonderful person who touched a lot of lives, and I think that the best way we can honor the people who were lost and the families like Mackenzie's who lost people to the AIDS crisis is to talk about their stories. When we're talking about AIDS and and the side effects thereof and, and the terror that came with that, and also to distinguish that HIV is different than AIDS, we'll get into the likelihood of one turning into the other these days in a second medical science luckily now with funding and, and time has progressed to the the point that this isn't a death sentence that is a huge reduction of stigma and of, of difficulty in daily life so-, so big takeaway is obviously if you have uh get tested Yes. Uh, pretty consistently, uh, and talk to your doctor about preventative measures and treatments because it's not as scary as it was in the '80s, but it absolutely is something that you should be aware of and that your partner yeah. should be aware of. STD testing and just awareness of your own body and and your health factors, um, obviously, and your partners and, and all that good stuff. And there are there are free clinics that offer these as well. Yeah. So I know that not everyone has access to healthcare, but mm-hmm. there are lots of free clinics that offer STD testing and ways to access these preventative measures and treatments. Yeah. The only way. It's Scary these days is if you keep your head in the sand. So it's it's a good lesson. Being aware is your best defense at this point. Absolutely. You had transmission rates on hand. Would you mind sharing those? Yes. And this is current. So science progresses, and and make sure that policy keeps up with that. Now, one in seven people with HIV in the U.S. are unaware of being infected. So get tested. Uh, if you go to a free testing site, it is free, as the name would suggest. Heterosexual, penal, vaginal, penetrative sex. The receptive, the vaginal partner, that is 0.08%, so less than 1% per exposure without protection. The insertive partner, the penal partner, is 0.04%. Anal intercourse, the receptive partner, so the one who's receiving the penetration, this is the highest occurrence rate. It is a little less than 2% for unprotected sex to contract HIV. And then um, penetrative... Anal sex is about 0.1% risk of uh, infection. 66% of people who are HIV positive now are men who have sex with men. 24% are heterosexual couples. Uh, 7% are people who inject drugs, and 4% are men who have sex with men and also inject drugs. So just keep that in mind. There are also uh, negligible percentages of perinatally acquired, so people whose parents were positive when they were pregnant. And also passed through breast milk, which is why some babies get it. But important, and this is a good segue, to mention prophylactic or preventative transmission treatments. PrEP or PEP. Yeah. So, PEP is post-exposure. So, after you've been exposed to HIV, in the first 72 hours, you can take PEP, and it, the side effects can be a little rough because it's, it's fucking with your immune system. Uh, that is pretty effective. PrEP is pre-exposure prophylactic treatment um, that you can take consistently if you know that you might be exposed or your partner is somebody who's positive. And another... Big preventative measure is treatment as prevention. So if you're HIV positive and you get treated early and consistently, first of all, worth noting that your life expectancy is now, with the current treatments, the same as somebody who is not HIV positive. And with early consistent treatment, it likely will not turn to AIDS. It's also useful if you are HIV positive for your partner because you having an undetectable viral load, which means that you're you're treated well enough that it doesn't show up in your system when you're tested. That also means that your partner will not get it. And stay smart in future. And Absolutely. you know what? As as the pin that Stewart was buried in said, "Preserve culture, kill a mime." He he would want you to. Yeah, you can find me at MKZ Joy Brennan on Instagram. And get me to a nunnery on Twitter. The two is the number two. The You can find me at Brooke Angeline on Instagram and at BK Rogers on Twitter. And and donate to our Patreon. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash exceedingly persuasive.
1: Here's drive to you. Drunk.
0: Wear a mask. Don't drive love drunk. Your, love people around you. Love thy neighbor. Love thy and neighbor. Good night and good luck, gang. All right.